following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. So children, you know these times when you've done something that your parents didn't know you did it, but it was wrong. You've all done that. And then you know you've got this funny feeling inside you, we'd say inside your heart, and you felt miserable. So miserable, what did you do? You went and confessed to your parents what you had done. Now that funny feeling, and then you know how you, good you felt afterwards then. After you went and told them what you had done, even if you had to be punished for it, you felt good. And that funny feeling is what the Bible calls conscience. Come back and define conscience in a bit. But you experienced, children have all experienced the, the pleasure of a good conscience as well as the evil of a bad conscience. And that really is what Job is dealing with here. Now, a little background to what is happening now in chapter 31. It's what I refer to as the multi-layer teaching of Scripture. The multi-layered teaching of Scripture. Let me illustrate it from just one example of the life of our Savior. His enemies came to him, both the Romanists and the strict Jews, with a trick question. And that is, should we pay ta uh, taxes to Caesar or not? And of course, they thought they had him, you know, hung on the horns of a dilemma. Because if he said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well then, there were the Rhodians and they could report him for being a traitor. If he said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, here were the strict Jews and they would then turn against him. And so our Savior's answer works on a multi-layer plane, so to speak. In the first place, we marvel at his wisdom. And that's part of what that story is about, is to teach us the glorious wisdom of the Son of God who is our Savior. But then, even as we marvel at his wisdom, we realize that the Holy Spirit used his answer to confound his enemies, and they further hardened their heart, moving toward the purpose of God to crucify him. But then the next layer is, is that through this trial with his enemies and his answer that shows his wisdom, he gives us a profound biblical principle of how the Christian is to relate to the state. And Peter will summarize that. We, we obey men and not God. And if the state tells us to disobey God, then we obey God. And so that's what I mean by a multi-layer uh, doctrines revealed in Scripture, particularly in some of these narratives. Now, that's what we have in, in Job chapter 31, actually in all of Job's speeches, but it comes to the clearest focus right here in this chapter. You see, in the first place, what's Job doing? In this and his other speeches, he's vindicating himself against the charges of being a gross sinner and a hypocrite. And he's answered his enemies, and they can no longer respond to him. But then as he answers them in vindication, he puts flesh and bones on what it means to be a man that God described to be blameless, upright, a God-fearer, and turning away from evil. Now, those words are a bit abstract. 
But now in Job's confession, in his vindication, we see exactly what a godly man or a godly woman ought to be doing. But then we go to the next level, and there's this glorious revelation of the unity of God's law in all of Scripture. Now we've noted, and as we've worked our way, and we'll see it again today, worked our way through this uh, section, that uh, the things that Job professes to have done correctly were things that would all be revealed in the Mosaic Law. But Job lived before the Mosaic Law. He lived in the age of the patriarchs. And so what we see from his testimony is, is that God has written on the heart of every person his law. That's how conscience functions. And then God gave a faithful revelation from Adam up uh, through the patriarchs to Abraham uh, and to Job himself, along with some visions. Then we see the unity of everything that God revealed as his moral will set forth in the principles of the Ten Commandments and their application in the Mosaic legislation. But then we come to the New Testament and not one of them has been changed. All the things that Job confesses to be part of his integrity are things that God calls you and me to do. You see the multi-layered doctrines of this one account and what a glorious thing is God's wisdom who reveals this to us. Now, in these verses before us, verses 33 in the chapter, we come to the grand climax of Job's defense. And not just his defense here, really, of the entirety of his speeches as we've watched him grow in faith and, and become calmer and, and more perceptive in the things he's saying. And now there's this glorious uh, defense of himself in chapter 31 where he defends his chastity, his business practices, his marriage, his um, uh, dealing with the poor, um, his uh, avoiding idolatry, and then we saw last week uh, his love both for enemy and neighbor. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. All things that God would have you and me to emulate by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we come to this grand climax where Job puts it all together with one last self-maledictory oath. For those of you who have not been with us, this whole chapter is laid out. Uh, it's not as seen as consistently in the New American Standard with a series of if-then oaths. If I've done this, let God do this to me. Now, sometimes the curse is not specifically mentioned, but we know it's there, it's implied. And now he comes to the last if-then self-destructive oath. And in this oath, thinking of all that he's had to say, what Job is doing here is showing us the importance of a good conscience. He shows us the importance of maintaining a good conscience and how to maintain that conscience before God and men. So we'll consider it three things as Job, the Spirit, speaks to us through Job of the importance of maintaining a good conscience. We'll look at the maintenance of a good conscience, the mark of a good conscience, and then the confidence of a good conscience. All things that we want. Well, we begin in verse 31, or 33, with the, the maintenance of a good conscience. Um, unfortunately, the New American Standard translates this, have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? It's actually another one of these if statements. Now, they translated 
have because it's part of a question that we're going to look at in the next point in verse uh, 34. But basically, Job is saying negatively, if I've covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, then let this be the consequence. What he's saying here is, is that he has uh, uh, openly and freely confessed his sins, not like Father Adam. Now, in the margins of some of your Bibles, the word that's translated Adam is also the word mankind, and that works here just as well. But I believe he has a specific reference to Father Adam. And boys and girls, remember what Adam did when God came walking in the garden. He tried to clothe his nakedness with fig leaves and then hide from God behind a tree. And then when God approached him, what did he do? He blamed God and he blamed Eve. You see, Adam was hiding his sin in his heart, in his bosom. And all mankind descending from him does exactly the same thing. So Job is asserting in the positive, I have not acted like my forebear or like other mankind, and I have not tried to hide my sin. In other words, he's saying I have openly, freely, spontaneously confessed my sin to God and to those against whom or before whom I sinned. Now, what does that have to do with maintaining a good conscience? Well, everything. First, what is the conscience? The conscience is a God-created, actually the Puritans called it a thing, a God-created part of us as the image bearers of God. And it is joined with the law of God that is written on our hearts, the remnant of that which is there even though we are fallen. Now we know that from Romans chapter 2, that there's an accurate enough reference um, in our hearts to the law of God for conscience to work. So conscience testifies with God against us or for us. That's why it's con-science. Knowing with. Knowing with whom? Knowing with God and the law of God that he has written on our hearts. And thus, conscience will bear testimony to us of our thoughts and our deeds, whether they are right by the law of God or whether they are wrong and evil. Now, there are two types of conscience. There's a good conscience and a bad conscience. The bad conscience is the conscience that belongs to the person who's not a Christian, not been born again by the power of God, and the bad conscience then will testify to them of their lost condition, even as Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Now, that conscience Isaiah describes when it's stirred up, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse. There's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. God disturbs the, uh, the conscience of the wicked the same way you see a stormy uh, water down on the Gulf or in the Atlantic Ocean. And it stirs up all the sand. And that is the turmoil of conscience. Now sometimes, as some of you well know, an unbeliever can benumb his conscience and can trick it uh, into uh, not bothering him or her for some period of time. But God does not leave them alone. So periodically the Holy Spirit comes and will stir up the conscience with uh, self-accusations and bring this awful sense of guilt. And you've experienced that uh, before you were converted, those of you that were not converted in childhood. And uh, you cannot benumb it forever because God is a merciful God. 
And he keeps pressing the conscience. And you need to use that when you witness to neighbors or friends or you men that will later preach is that you must appeal to the conscience, the conscience of the unconverted. You have an ally there, you see, because you know exactly what they think. You know exactly how they're going to respond. And it's kind of like scratching a scab and making it bleed. You can scratch the scab of the conscience, of a hardened conscience. And oftentimes the Holy Spirit will take the scratching away at conscience to bring them under a conviction of sin. And in fact, use that as a process in their conversion. Well, that's a bad conscience. But the born-again believer has a good conscience. And that's the conscience that the Bible of Hebrews tells us has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's been cleansed from the defilement and guilt of sin. And we can live open-facedly before God. We have the assurance that our sins have been forgiven. And that is the privilege of a good conscience. Now, how does this relate to confession of sin? Well, I hope that you can see it. The danger of unconfessed sin is hardening the conscience. And Solomon warns us about that. Um, Probably as he reflects on the confession of his father. But in Proverbs 28, he says, He who conceals his uh, sin, and it's the same word that's translated cover in our text. So it's the same word. He who covers his sin. Job says, I've not covered over my sin. I've not concealed my sin. He who has concealed or covered his sin, his transgression uh, will not prosper. Or who has concealed or covered his transgression will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. As I say, Solomon is reflecting here on what his daddy would have told him. Remember what David says in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with fever heat of summer. Now that is a graphic description of a bad conscience bearing witness against a regenerate person, but who had hardened himself in sin. But David goes on. He said, when he confessed sin, he found relief. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. What a glorious thing. He then declares, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. I trust you've known that. You've had dark days and were plagued by conscience as a, as a child of God. And you fled to him as David did and you confessed your sin and he's always open-armed. He never turns you away when you come to confess your sin. And the glorious joy that comes in with the realization that, that God's pardoned you completely. And the same way then in our relationships. Because you recognize that you, you created a barrier between you and um, a husband, a wife, a, a friend, someone in church or whatever. Uh, or maybe you've been going to see somebody and, and your conscience, you know, I really, I've not done them right. You might think of just the fact that something you did or didn't do years ago. But it's the first time you've seen them. And how freeing it is. You say, you know, I sinned against you, are before you. Please forgive me. That's the glory of maintaining a good conscience 
the freedom and peace that we have then with God and with one another. And I trust that all of you here today who are in Christ are uh, aggressively, actively confessing your sins to God and to one another. Maintaining that good conscience, not allowing a day of cloud to come between you and your heavenly Father. But it's possible that some of you here this morning are being plagued by a bad conscience. You could recognize the description that um, Isaiah gives us. Your heart, your conscience is like the tumultuous sand and a tumultuous sea. And uh, you're plagued and you're beaten down and you're depressed and you try to numb it. And for a while that works and then it comes back. Oh, my dear friend, if, if the spirit of Christ is working in you to quicken your conscience, then turn unto God. That's a gracious thing that God is doing for you. He's taking your conscience to bear testimony to you that, that you're unconverted. But in doing so, he's offering you hope, you see. He wouldn't bother you if he wasn't offering you hope. And so I call on you, if, if your conscience this day plagues you, if you're beaten down with a bad conscience, then cry out to God for mercy. Come to him in this incarnate Savior whom we've sung and, and confessed in our prayer of confession. And he will gladly receive you regardless. You understand that? Regardless of what you have done. Paul assures us of that in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9 through 11. Murderers and idolaters and homosexuals and kidnappers and every other wickedness under the face of the sun. And such were some of you. But you've been washed and sanctified and justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. And so may the Spirit use, if you have this morning, a depressed conscience to take you right into the arms of a loving God. But understand if you don't. When the Bible describes the worm in hell that eats and ever devours, he's talking, it's talking about the conscience. We'll do this in Sunday school today, but I want you to understand that if you harden your heart against Christ right now and you never turn to God, that in hell your conscience will testify to you about every prayer, every other conviction of conscience, every gospel sermon you heard, and you'll curse yourself. As you're plagued by conscience. So today, while there's time, oh, flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then maintain a good conscience by free, open confession of sin. Well, next, we want to look at the marks of a good conscience. What does the conscience enable us to do? And it makes us bold before men and before God. So we read in uh, verses uh, 34. Uh, through 37. First before men, verse 34, because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and kept silent and did not go out of doors. Now, you see this is translated, it's a question. Because or for, I feared the great multitude. So, if I covered my transgression like Adam by hiding iniquity in my bosom, because or for, I feared the great multitude, the contempt of families terrified me and kept silent. So what Job is saying here in this kind of truncated sentence, this oath, is that you can judge the fact whether or not he had covered over his sins 
by his public activity. He's saying, if I have not openly confessed my sin to God and to my neighbor, then I am afraid. I'm afraid to go out into public. I am paranoid. But he puts it in that way to testify that, in fact, since he's not afraid to go out in public, then he has openly confessed his sin. You can put it into a hypothetical syllogism for you boys and girls who get to study logic. And we'll put it this way. If my car is out of gas, it will not run. But you deny that and you say, my car runs. So what then is the solution? It's not out of gas. So Job is saying, if I have not confessed my sins, I will be afraid of my neighbors. I'll be afraid to exercise my public work as a magistrate. I will hide inside the door. But in fact, I've not been afraid of my neighbors. I've not stayed inside the door. I've not been in any way afraid to exercise my public office as magistrate. And so what he's done here then is say, I, my bold, I have boldness before men. I have boldness before my neighbor. I have boldness as a, as a magistrate, as a judge, because I deal with my sin properly. And so the mark of a good conscience before others is simply a boldness to be who and what we ought to be before them. You see, a bad conscience, unconfessed sin, produces paranoia. Afraid of what others think of us or saying about us. Now, there are other causes for paranoia. I'm not going to argue that today. But one of the primary causes is undealt with sin, a bad conscience. Solomon says that the, the person, um, the, the sinner flees at the, the sound of a leaf. That's paranoia. Uh, and so if you've covered over your sin, you're never going to have a freedom with other people. Because what do they know about me? Do they know my secrets? Um, and thus you are plagued. And only confession of sin can deliver you from worrying about what people think or say about you. But if you're open with God and them, then you can live your life publicly and boldly as a child of God and exercise your functions in family, work, and church than according to your responsibilities. But if you don't have that good conscience, and I've observed on more than one occasion, Ministers who didn't have a good conscience, and you could see it in their faces, and you could hear it in their preaching and the, really the lack of what they said. It's a terrible thing. There's also a problem, though, of, of having had your conscience cleansed but not being freed from the subjective guilt, not believing God because of the weight of what you did. Now, that happened to David. David was pardoned, but he never could get over what he had done, and he lost his authority, didn't he? Lost his authority with his family, lost his authority as king, and those last years were plagued by that reality, that even though he was pardoned. Now, you need to understand that you don't want to be like David. Even if you've committed a wickedness, if you've betrayed your husband or wife or some other thing in the family, or the church, or work, or whatever, you pardon, you confess your sins, you make proper restitution. But then you must continue to function according to God's order. And not let Satan stir up a cleansed conscience to act as if it is a guilty conscience. Because a good conscience bears the mark of boldness and freedom in public and in our relationships. But more importantly, 
boldness with God. And here's one of these, the last remarkable um, pleas of Job, starting in verse 33 through verse 37. Oh, oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written, surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. Now this is not new language for Job. He has been pleading for a court appearance with God. And that's a bold thing to do. Now he states it wrongly. He's too bold in some of his assertions and Elihu will correct those. But at the bottom of what he's saying is, not that he's not a sinner, but he's not living in gross sin and he keeps a good conscience before God and men by the proper confession of sin. So he's asking for his day in court. And that's what a good conscience can do for you. You can have your day in court. So he wants to be heard. He wants God to hear him. He wants God to uh, come before him. Uh, he says, I'm signing off on this. And it's very interesting. The, the word translated in my Bible, signature, is the word mark. And it's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. And it is the mark. Of course, when people uh, couldn't write, they would use their mark. It's not saying that Job couldn't write, but it becomes the, the, the mark of a signature. He's saying, I want to sign this official document before Jehovah God, Almighty, and that's the name of God here, and let the Almighty answer me. Now, his friends, his adversaries, have brought one accusation after another against him, but he's saying, God, what is your accusation? Let the indictment, which my adversary has written, be written, signed, and he says, I will publicly placard it. I'll wear it on my shoulders. I'll put it on my head like a crown. He says, I know in my conscience that I'm not a wicked, guilty sinner. And thus, I gladly will bear any indictment that God has against me publicly. I'll wear it as a crown of public honor on my head. He said, if this could happen, I would declare to God the number of my steps, which simply means the way of my life. And then look at this. Like a prince, I would approach him. Princes and princesses can come boldly and freely into the presence of monarchs and other important people. Cabinet members can come into the presence of the president and whatever. And Job is saying, I've got a clear conscience before God. And thus, I can boldly, I can boldly come into his presence. Now, you remember, he began to get light as he saw our Savior from the distance. But my friends, you see him close and near. If Job could come into God's presence like a prince, think what we can do. We're not just, we're the sons and daughters of God. And because of the cleansing of conscience by Christ, we're told we come boldly into the throne room of heaven. We must not hold back. It is our privilege. Now, if you're living in sin, you're going to hold back because your conscience is bothering you. But you keep short accounts with God and men. And then you're able the testimony of a good conscience, and that's the mark of it now. Can you come to God in prayer? Are you pulling back from prayer? Are you ashamed to come to God's presence in prayer? Then that's an indication that you've not dealt with sin. 
Now, regardless of what you have done, if you've confessed your sins, it's been absolutely covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are righteous. And you come boldly into the presence of God. Now, here is one of the ways that God's given your baptism to help you. You see, baptism with the washing of water, which signifies the washing of our consciences with blood, is an appeal for a good conscience. And so, my friend, look at your baptism. Remember what God says to you in your baptism, that he's covered your sin with his blood. And thus you can have a good conscience, and you can come boldly into the presence of God. We see the maintenance of a good conscience. We see the marks of a good conscience, boldness before men and before God. And finally, we see, and I've labored for how to put this, we're going to put the confidence of a good conscience in that the conscience now can act um, boldly, as we've seen, before the neighbor and before God. The appeal of a good conscience in verses 38 to 40. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I've eaten its fruit without money, I've caused its owners to lose their lives. Let briars grow instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. He uses this beautiful um, figure of speech as if the land itself could cry and plowed furrows could weep. Poetically, to, to put again this reality of the confidence now that he can testify before his neighbors. He can call upon them. He's been accused of abusing them and everybody else. And so basically, he's saying, look, by the land crying, he's talking about his laborers being cheated their wages. His neighbors being cheated what is owed to them, uh, eating its fruit without money. Again, this is the unity of God's law. In uh, Leviticus 19, 13, the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. But then think about James, New Covenant. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of Lord Sabaoth. You've lived luxuriously on the earth. Let a wife of wanton pleasure you fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. And that's your slaughter. You see, again, it's a theme that runs straight through Scripture. Responsibility to uh, uh, pay people what we owe them, particularly to pay those who work for us. And so the particular concrete thing is if he's not paid his labors, if he's, he's gotten wealthy over their backs, he's, he's har he plowed their backs rather than they plowed his field, um, then let's, let, the, let the fields cry out against him. Let the furrows weep at such an injustice. Um, he did not hold back. He paid his neighbor. And then the last line of verse 39, I have caused its owners to lose their lives. You could take this as simply he took their livelihood. But if you, my margin translates this appropriately, and that is the soul of its owners to expire. That means to die. Who comes to mind? Well, Ahab. He caused the soul of Naboth to expire because he wanted his land. And Job says, even though I'm the magistrate, I'm the ultimate chief power in this land. I'm not like some tin-horned dictator. I can openly testify before men that I've never stolen or ever murdered to take anything that was somebody else's. 
So he's calling on his neighbors, but ultimately he's calling upon God because only God can do then what he says in um, verse 39, 40. Let briars grow instead of wheat and stink weed instead of barley. I don't know what stink weed is, but it sure sounds bad and smelly. Not pleasant, not good like barley. In other words, let my fields become absolutely unproductive. Now, who alone can do that? See, God. This is the final oath of self-malediction. Lord, if I've done this, destroy my property. Let my fields be unproductive. Let them produce the very curses of sin, as we sang, enjoy to the world. But you see, he had a clear conscience. And so with confidence, he could say, God, if I've done any of these things, any of the things mentioned here, any of the things in this chapter, any of the previous accusations of my enemies, then, Lord, you judge me publicly. But otherwise, he boldly comes to God for acceptance. You see, the conscience is one of the most beautiful possessions you own in this life. I hope you see the importance of, of having and maintaining a good conscience. Beware then, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, of the danger, even as a professed believer, perhaps even as a converted, converted uh, member, of hardening your conscience. Because what is it that Paul then says of, in 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20? He gets to the danger of hardening the conscience. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some... These were members of the church, have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered over to Satan, so they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now there's hope there, you see, this excommunication. It's always with hope that this person um, will be restored. But you see the danger. You harden your conscience, my dear friend, when the Spirit of Christ, through Scripture, is convicting you of the practice of some sin. Your faith becomes shipwrecked. It goes up on the shoals, the rocks. They're destructive. If God's merciful, you'll be excommunicated. That you then might be brought to repentance. But don't sit here this morning then. Even as you profess Christ and harden yourself in the practice of some sin. No, right now, be broken. Cry out to God. God, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. And then, of course, the converse. We see that all we want to do is strive for the good conscience, which Paul says in verse 5 is the goal of biblical instruction. Love with a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Maintain a good conscience, and you will grow in grace and guidance by the perfect work of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, glorious God, we thank you for uh, these words that you have set before us today. And we glory in the reality of uh, the privilege, Lord, of confessing our sins to you for Christ's sake, knowing that you pardon us. Help all of us, Lord, to keep pure consciences through open confession. Keep us from hardening our hearts against you. And Lord, we pray if anyone is here today who has not had his conscience or her conscience cleansed by the blood of Christ, that even now 
the Spirit would convict them and draw them into the arms of the Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.